Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes, Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace." In chapter 6, Paul invites the believer to embrace three facts. Number one, we've been crucified with Christ. That's what we saw in verses 1 through 3. Number two, we've been resurrected with Christ. That's what it says in verses 4 and 5. And now, number three, we are both dead and alive. How is that possible that we're both dead and alive in verses 6 through 10? We are dead to sin in verses 6 and 7. That we should no longer be slaves to sin because we've been crucified with Christ. And we're alive to the Savior in verses 8, 9, and 10. We now live by grace in the resurrection power of the one who rose from the dead and is alive, the Bible says, forevermore. And so, Paul invites us to know, verses 1 through 10. Paul invites us to reckon in verse 11. And Paul will invite us to yield in verses 12 through 23. The first part, knowledge, is about information. The second part, reckoning, is about calculation. The way that I would put this is the knowledge we possess now becomes the basis for which we're given permission to act. And number three, the third involves submission in verses 12 through 23, which we'll look at in the not-too-distant future. So what is it that Paul is inviting us to know, to reckon, to yield, If we're to walk in God's will, and if we're going to walk in God's word, then we believe that God's grace, we believe that God's grace is greater than the power of sin. And so Paul is going to try to convince you. Look at verse 11, our reckoning of sin. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The very first word in verse 11, likewise. This is a word that's used in light of the facts of the preceding verses. Our old man is crucified, verse 6. The seat or the place of sin's residence has been crucified or killed. Jesus died for both our sin and our sinfulness. Do you understand the difference? Jesus has died for our sin. That's everything that we've done. And Jesus has died for our sinfulness. 
That's everything that we are. We are free from sin in verse 7. That means that sin no longer has any claim over us. Sin can make no demands on a dead person. You know, I know that many of you have experienced the loss of a loved one, a mother, a father, a brother, a sister, tragically maybe even a child. But when a person dies, there's no more demands. I know that there are people who can send letters to my dead father and say, you owe me, but can you actually collect from a dead person? The answer is no. And so that's the point that Paul is making. Sin can make no demands over a dead person. And we shall also live in verse 8. What difference does all of this make? It's the difference between, again, knowledge and ignorance. With knowledge comes power. But the power is only valuable if you act on the information. If someone told you that there's a check waiting for you for a million dollars, that would be good news. But the check has no value unless you're willing to cash it. And that's part of the point. So what is it exactly that we are to reckon or calculate? We're dead to sin. We are to conclude to be true in us what God has declared to be true in us. That's the invitation. And again, likewise, you reckon. The Greek word is logizomai. It occurs 42 times in the Greek New Testament. 19 times here in the book of Romans. I have here a note in my Bible. It does not mean suppose. It means to count on. And so again, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead. The word dead is necros. It doesn't refer to the act or the process of dying, but to the state or the effect produced by death. The process of dying is another word in the Greek language. It's thanesco. And by the way, in verse 3, 4, 5, 7, 8, 9, 10, it's the Nesco. It's the process of dying. In verse 11, dead. Dead. And again, it doesn't mean pretending like you're dead, or imagining that you're dead, or wishing that you're dead. We don't conquer sin. Jesus conquers sin. Now this is going to become an important point for everyone, everyone, everyone who's a Christian. Particularly if you're a Christian and you've said over and over and over again in your life, I wish I could conquer sin in my life. I wish I could conquer sin in life. I wish I could stop being such a jerk. I know you never talk like that to yourself. But for those of you who do talk like that to yourself, Jesus has conquered sin. The Bible never asks you to conquer sin. Jesus has conquered sin. Paul is asking you to change your mind or change your attitude about your relationship to sin. We're to consider ourselves dead. It is a fact that God has declared, and therefore it can be a fact to us. Dead men don't respond to temptation. Dead men don't respond to pride or employ selfish motives. 
But also, dead men don't provide blessing or cheer or song or love. Dead men don't become doctors or farmers or grocers or builders. We are dead to self, but we're alive in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our life, the Bible will say over and over again, is hidden in Christ. We are identified with Christ. Our life is not in Catholicism or Protestantism or even in Calvary Chapel. It isn't in philosophy or even in theology, although your church and your philosophy and your theology can provide a lot of things, it can't provide you life. Your life is in Christ Jesus. We are dead to self. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There was a very famous man in the 19th century named George Mueller who grew up throughout the 1800s and was a mature adult in Elizabethan um, England. And he saw the world through the eyes of Jesus and he saw the deprivation of orphans and when he saw all of the problems with child labor and the children who were abandoned, by the way, children under the age of nine who were abandoned didn't live in orphanages. Uh, Usually they lived in jails. They were in prison. And Mueller was, was absolutely horrified by that reality. And so he purposed in his life that he was going to take every child, every child, every child. And by, by God's grace, he was going to raise that child. And by the way, over the course of his life, he raised 10,000 children. As a matter of fact, he filled in for Charles Haddon Spurgeon in his pulpit. George Mueller was once asked the secret of his amazing ministry and distinguished ministry for Jesus. And he he said, there was a day when I died, utterly died. And as he spoke, he bent lower and lower and lower until he almost touched the floor. He said, died to George Mueller, died to his opinions, died to his preferences and tastes and will, and died to the world, its approval and censure, died to the approval or blame, even of my brethren and friends. And since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. He understood the power of the passage. We're alive to God in Christ Jesus. We are dead. That's part of the story. But it isn't even the most important part of the story. We have new life in Christ. Abundant life in Jesus. Eternal life in Jesus. Satisfying life in Jesus. So we're given permission to walk in newness of life. Our victory isn't simply the fact that we've been issued a death certificate because of the crucifixion. We've been issued a birth certificate because of the resurrection. Our death certificate 
satisfied all of the obligations of the old life, of everything that we used to be in Adam. I want you to think this through. Our death certificate removes the penalty, and our birth certificate gives us power. What kind of power? Strength and power, because strength and power are attributes of life. Dead people don't, they don't do stuff. Living people do stuff. Years ago, W.H. Griffith Thomas published a tiny little booklet that's out of print. The booklet was called, Must Christians Sin? And the pamphlet discusses three views of the believer's relationship to sin. The first view is the eradication of sin. The second is the suppression of sin. And the third is what Griffith Thomas called the counteraction of sin. The first view, eradication, is the idea of the complete principle of the removal of sin. Thomas argues that this goes too far. It goes beyond the scripture. Sin is in no sense eradicated because remember what it says in 1 John. For if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The effect of Christ's death was to remove sin's penalty and to destroy sin's power in the sinner. It removes the penalty. It destroys the power. But it doesn't destroy sin. Sin is not dead. But the sinner is dead to sin. The second view is called suppression. This is the idea that the, all the believer has to do is just simply depress your desires. That constant inner struggle against sin's solicitation or invitation. Again, Thomas argues this doesn't go far enough. He says to suppress it is dangerous. Because you can pretend that the desire isn't there. Or you can wish that the desire is there. He says But it's not true. He likens it to steam that builds up, that has no place to go. He writes, suppress steam and you have this explosion. And so it is with our emotions. The scriptures do not say, neither yield ye, but they don't don't stop there. For they go on to say, but yield yourselves. And so in the second view, it's not suppression against unrighteousness, but expression in righteousness that's the real secret of getting on in life. It's not our faculties that are wrong, but the way that we use our faculties. And so in the suppression of of sin, he basically argues the first one goes too far. The second one doesn't go far enough. And so he argues the third view, counteraction. This goes far enough and is the true view, he writes, because it expresses the scriptural truth that, quote, the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. This is the exact words of Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 2. There are two laws, the law of life and the law of death. The law of life supersedes and counteracts the law of death. The argument continues from Romans 6.6. 6. 
knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Remember, in verse 6, the word destroyed doesn't mean obliterated. It doesn't mean like you take something and you throw it in an incinerator and it is completely gone. The word destroyed in verse 6 is a word that means inoperative. Let me give you kind of a modern example. If you have a computer or a laptop, like I have a laptop, it has a battery life. And it'll run, it'll run, it'll run, it'll run. And then it gets down to like 19% and 18% and 10%. And then it goes quickly, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Now, if you've ever been, but you would never do this because you're not dumb like I am. You would never, ever use up all of your battery till it becomes absolutely lifeless. But that's what happens. If you take the battery out, you render the computer inoperative. This is the argument that's made in verse 6. That he removes the battery, if you will, rendering sin inoperative. So here's the idea. He writes, sin is put out of operation. It's been robbed of its power. To recognize this and act on it is to bring into operation and action all of the powerful forces of righteousness of this new law. This is the new law of the spirit of life. And the source of it isn't the source of the will or the strength of the mind. It's the new mastery of life through Jesus Christ. It's therefore not a natural law. It's not even a legal law. It's spiritual law. It neither... It is neither man nor Moses, but Christ. It is not law, but life, unquote. And so he continues, our right and wrong yielding. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. The original is even more emphatic. In the original language, it's, it reads... Be not at all allowing sin to reign. Again, going back to the illustration, it would be like you put the battery back in in order to allow it to operate. Does our will play any role in our relationship to sin and victory over sin? Paul says... Do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in its lusts. The implication being, you do have something to say about it. Many years ago, there was this incredibly stupid skit that used to be done on SNL, Saturday Night Live, with Dana Carvey. For whatever reason, Dana Carvey took on this creature called the church lady. And Dana Carvey would say about the church lady that it it represented the church in which he grew up in. And there was this one particular woman at his particular church who 
sort of becomes the real-life example for Dana Carvey in his presentation of the church lady. And you'll remember that if anyone did anything wrong, Dana Carvey would, under the guise of the church lady, she, she would say, And who made you do this? Maybe Satan? Yeah, and everybody would laugh. They would laugh at the caricature. But part of the point that Paul is making in the text is, guess what? You can no longer blame it on Satan. And you can't blame it on your mother and father and your brother and your sisters. You can't blame it on your neighbors. You can't blame it on the government shutdown. You can't blame it on your enemies. You can't blame it on your friends. So when he says, therefore, do not let sin reign, and and note the expression, mortal body. Do you you know what your mortal body is? Your mortal body is the body that is subject to death. It's the one you brought into the sanctuary. It's the one that's sitting in the chair. The mortal body is the body that has a temporary reality. And so, we're awaiting a future body at Christ's coming. So sin is present in our bodies, ready to reign as king. If permitted, it is through lust or desire or passions that sin is ready to assume control. The body has desires. Now, remember, the body's desires aren't always sinful, and it isn't always evil. The body that desperately wants to watch the Broncos this afternoon, that isn't necessarily wrong, but it could be. If for whatever reason, that becomes the sum and the substance of your life. It isn't wrong for your body to want food. Paul will write, speaking of foods, all things are lawful for me, but I won't be brought under the control of anything. So if Paul were here and I said, dude, let's go to Chick-fil-A. Paul would say, they're closed on Sunday. He's happy to eat Chick-fil-A, but he just can't eat Chick-fil-A on Sunday. And see, here, here's what the, the point. It's when natural desires are yielded to self-will or self-indulgence that sin will use the desires of the body to assert sin's power and establish sin's reign. And we're directed to reject this reigning of sin. And over and over and over again, there are examples of that. Paul will write, well, actually, it's James who writes about the tongue. He says that the tongue is an unruly member. He's not saying cut out your tongue, but the moment you open your mouth, your tongue will speak words of edification or condemnation. So how is it that we allow sin to reign in our bodies? Here's the point that Paul is making. Permission. How is it that we allow sin to reign in our bodies? 
We give permission. What are some of those permissions? We refuse to glorify God, Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. We rebel against the known will of God. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, and 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. We resist the opportunity to do good. That's James 4, 17. We react with anger instead of kindness, Ephesians 4, 26 and 27. Remember what it says. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted. Forgiving one another. So if you refuse to be kind to one another, if you refuse to be tender-hearted but hard-hearted, holding grudges, then you're allowing sin to reign. When we refuse to glorify God, when we refuse... The known will of God, when we resist the opportunity to do good, when we react with anger instead of kindness, we respond to sin's desires, we respond to their enticements and invitations. And Paul basically says, you don't have to do that. Rather, he says in verse 13, do not, do not Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, let's pause for a moment. Paul has given us information. This is what you know. Calculation. This is what you reckon. In other words, based on the information that I have, I now have permission to act on the, permission, on, on the information that's been given to me. We submit. In verse 13 where it says, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. And then it says, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, let me help you. Information, you know. Exhortation, you reckon. Present, that's submission. That's yield. We do all of this, we yield. In what way do we yield? I I need you to think it through. You yield with your mind and your will. The Bible says, with the heart... Man believes. We learn that we're dead from sin. We're identified with Jesus. Remember, because we're dead in sin, remember we've been placed in the witness protection program. We have a new identity. Our new identity is in Jesus. And so with the heart, we believe this truth. When God says, your old man is crucified with Christ, that's the divine testimony. The divine testimony is This is what God has to say about your circumstance. It's a revealed fact. I hear it with my ear. I believe it with my heart. Then we apply it with our will. Sin shall not reign. So what role does our body play in this great drama we call our life in Christ? What will we make of our bodies? Roy Lawrence says, they will either be temples or toys. In what sense? Temples are for the presence of God. Toys are for children. Toys serve a temporal process. 
There's nothing wrong with toys in this sense. When my grandchildren come over, or when children are playing at my house, they have toys. Is it wrong for children to have toys? Of course not. What do toys do? They preoccupy children. Toys entertain. Toys make us laugh. Toys entertain us. Temples are for worship and for praise and for communion. And so the invitation is, your body isn't a toy to play with. It's a temple to worship with and praise with and enter into communion with God. We can present our bodies unto sin for sinful purposes. Or we can present our bodies unto righteousness for righteous purposes. We can use our hand to hit somebody or to, to, to comfort someone. We can use our tongue to hinder or hurt or slander or edify. Your members of your body are all of the things your body, your eyes, your nose, your ears, your mouth, your hands, your feet. It's everything that you are, and you're using everything that you are to further the kingdom or hinder the kingdom. You're using it to entertain yourself, or you can use it as an instrument of praise and worship. The Bible says, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 18, it says, Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Where is the Holy Spirit? In you. This is very, very important. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit brings comfort. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Holy Spirit brings comfort because the Holy Spirit brings Jesus. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. If I were to use the illustration of a physician, you go to a doctor and the doctor looks at you and evaluates you and finds out what's wrong and then prescribes medicine in order to heal you. In that illustration, the physician is the Holy Spirit and the medicine is Jesus. The Holy Spirit brings Jesus as the satisfying solution to what's going on in your life. The Bible says, which you have of God, you are not your own. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. For you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Which are God's. In 1 Corinthians 6.18, Paul says, your body belongs to the Lord. Your spirit belongs to the Lord. For the person who says, it's my body and I'll cry if I want to. It's my body, I'll do with it whatever I please. The Bible says that's not true. It's not your body. It belongs to Jesus. Jesus has redeemed you. Your eyes belong to him. Your nose belongs to him. Your mouth belongs to him. Your hands and your feet belong to him. It isn't just on the inside that belongs to him. It's what's on the outside that belongs to him. Or you can present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. 
This is what Paul says. You get to show up because you've been resurrected in Christ. There will come a time, literally, not just metaphorically, literally you will come back to life. The body that you drug into the sanctuary this morning or the body that you're listening to from This body is going to wilt and it's going to die and it's going to be buried and it's or it's going to be burned. Something is going to happen to it. And the Bible says your body's going to be brought back to life. You're going to be given a resurrected body. In my resurrected body, I'm going to be much taller. (laughs) And I'm going to have jet black Italian suave hair. I'm going to look exactly like how people imagine I look when they hear me on the radio. (laughs) But the Bible gives you permission right at this very moment to act like a person who's come back to life and you have been given permission to present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. Now this is going to test your faith. And the reason why it's going to test your faith is because you're not going to always feel dead to sin. You're going to feel like the old man is trying to crawl out of its creepy casket and do things that it's not supposed to do. And so there's an invitation to yield. Look at verse 13. Note the use of the word present. In verse 13, it says... And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourself to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. The word present is different here than in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, you're to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Here, the word is parastimi. It means to yield. In what way? It's an attitude based on the recognition of facts. In our culture and society, when you're driving and you come up on the off-ramp and you see a sign that says, yield. What does that mean? I know some of you go, go as quickly as you can before anyone can cut in front of you. No, that is not what yield means. It means exactly the opposite. It doesn't mean speed up and make sure you get ahead of everybody else. Yield means you let the other person go first. You know that. It's pretty simple. When somebody shows up and says, yield. In ancient English, it it meant give up, yield, surrender. In our culture and society, it means let the other person go first. You respect and honor the fact that the other person has the right of way. That the other person has the right to go first. In the text itself, the word word means to stand alongside of. So Paul is in effect saying about presenting yourself or not presenting yourself. 
the, the issue in the language seems to have something to do in part with proximity. Paul is in effect saying, don't yield to sin in this sense. Keep your distance from it. Stay away from it. And then when it's talking about Jesus and Christ, it means stand alongside of. Get as close as you can. And this becomes one of the issues that each and every one of us can learn from. The closer you get to sin, the greater the chance that you have of yielding to that sin. It's not enough to just simply say, I'm going to stay, stay away from sin. It's stay as far away as possible. I heard the story of a person who was struggling with their weight. And so every morning they would drive by Dunkin' Donuts. And as they drive by, they go, oh, dear God, dear God, please, please, if you don't want me, if you don't want me to have a donut, if you don't want me to have a donut, please just make sure that there's no parking space right next to the donut shop. Just, just make sure there's no parking space. And so you drive into Dunkin' Donuts, and then you drive around once, and you drive around twice, and then you drive, oh, and there's an opening right in front of the donut shop. Oh, God, you didn't answer my prayer. The right way of thinking about it is stay away from the donut shop. Keep driving. Don't get into the the donut parking lot. It's not for you. That's the point. It's saying stay away. Stay as far away as you can. Present yourselves. Yield. As those who are alive from the dead. The dead Gino would go first. The resurrected Gino goes last. In the military or law enforcement. If your commander says I want you in my office. Do you know what you do? You show up. And then you know what else you do? You listen. And if there is an order that's given. You obey. Is it possible that your commander could call you into the office and you pretend like you're listening but you're not and an instruction is given but you have already determined that you're not going to follow it? When Paul says yield, he means show up. He means listen. And then he means act on what is being said. And so when it says we're to present ourselves to God, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to figure this one out. It's in the aorist tense, which is a definite entering. We present ourselves as risen ones to God. And what it basically means is that you present yourselves once and for all. This is not something that you have to keep visiting over and over and over again. You present yourselves to God once for all. He says, as to sin, do not be presenting. Present tense of a habitual or continued action. The exhortation involves believing and then taking an attitude as a risen one in Christ and thus present, yield yourself. We pray because we're alive from the dead. We thank God because we're alive from the dead. We serve God because we're alive from the dead. 
Jesus is risen. And God now uses our instruments as instruments of righteousness. You can see things that you never saw before. You could hear things that you've never heard before. And you can do things that you've never done before. And so he says in verse 14, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul is going to explain this from verses 15 to the end of the chapter, but let me just give you an introduction. Paul now answers the question that was begun at the beginning of the chapter. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No way, Jose. Think of the strongest way possible to say no. It doesn't say that we will not, but rather it says we need not. I want you to think about what you're reading again. Look back at the text. For sin shall not have dominion over you. I know what you're thinking. But wait a minute. Sin does have dominion over me. But it need not. Sin shall not have dominion over you. It doesn't say It will not, but it does say it need not. In what way? The text says sin shall not have dominion over you. This isn't an endorsement of the human will. This is the declaration of God's will. You are under grace. You are not under the law. Now, let's think about this for a moment. The law prohibits sin. Grace conquers sin. What Paul is in effect is saying is that sin has lost its ability to control you or dominate you or define you. The law no longer has the power to bring charges against you. In what way? We're talking spiritual now because the law still does have power to bring charges against you. In what way? If you see a sign that says 35 miles an hour and you go 90 miles an hour, if you break the law, are you subject to the consequences of the law? Yes. If you say, as you jump off a building, I'm no longer under the law, Uh, the law of gravity no longer applies. Does the law of gravity still apply? Yes. Does the law of entropy apply? The second law of thermodynamics, which says that order goes to chaos. All you have to do is look in the mirror and go, it's going from order to chaos. (laughs) What he is saying is that the law no longer has the power to bring charges against us in what sense? In the sense of going to hell. In the sense of, of dying in your sin. Sin has a distinct advantage over the person who's under the law. So for the person who continues under the law and says, hey, I want to do what the law says. Well, the law tells the person, please do this. But the person who is under the law doesn't have the power 
to always obey the law. You might sometimes obey the law, but sometimes you may not. The the law stirs up the desire and the fallen nature to do that which is forbidden. And it doesn't even have to be something egregious like killing or cheating or lying or stealing. For many of you, that's not even a problem anymore. It's the other kinds of law that torment you. Don't walk in the grass. I just need to walk on that grass. Don't touch the paint. Of course I'm going to touch the paint. Who are these people to tell me what I can and can't do? If we choose to obey sin's desires, then we will experience sin's consequences. If we choose to obey God's word and God's will, we reap the results which is righteousness and peace. Under grace, we're free to claim all of the benefits of Christ's conquest. As a matter of fact, in verse 14, I just want you to look at two little phrases. The word for, twice in the text. For sin. And then again, for you. The first, for, announces the divine decree that sin's lordship is ended. For sin shall not have dominion over you. The second one reveals the happy condition of everyone who loves Jesus and is redeemed for you. See what it says? For you are not under law. That's not who you are. You've been released. We're not under a legal condition or a legal principle which demands duty and holds out the expectation of blessing. The law says, do this and you'll be fine. Grace says, you're fine. And now you're free to do it. Remember, Paul doesn't say you're not under law in the sense that you no longer have to sin. The law says, Do this and you'll be blessed. And then you find yourself not doing it and you feel cursed and condemned. Grace says you are blessed now, not later. Remember, the law is the summation of all God's moral principles. You're not under the law. Not the Mosaic law. Gentiles were never under the Mosaic law. We are not under law. What does Paul mean? And he's going to talk about it because he's going to talk to the Jew in in chapter 7 in part who still is under the law of Moses. And he's going to argue that Jews who want to remain under the law of Moses cannot be released under the law of Moses unless they die. And so every Jew goes, Oh, this is not good news. This is terrible news. What are we going to do? This is terrible news. Then Paul will argue, but you are dead. In Christ, you experience the penalty that Jesus has died for you. And so there's redemption and freedom. We were in Adam. Whatever demands Adam made. For those who were in Moses, whatever demands Moses made. The demands in Adam and the demands in Moses ended at the cross. And so Paul extends words of comfort to anyone willing to listen. You are under grace. 
And it would do well to once again define grace. What is grace? Grace is God's free and unmerited favor shown to guilty sinners who deserve only judgment. It is the love of God shown to the unlovely. That's how Jerry Bridges defines it. Here's another definition. Grace is God acting freely according to his own nature as love with no promises or obligations to fulfill. And acting, of course, righteously in view of the cross. William Newell writes this grace is uncaused in the recipient its cause is holy in the giver God grace is sovereign having no debt to pay no condition to fulfill it can act toward anyone however it pleases it can and often does place the worst sinner in the highest favor Paul describes himself as the worst sinner, placed in the highest favor. What did you do to deserve grace? Nothing. Do you get more grace because you're a bigger jerk? No. Grace isn't dependent on jerkiness. It isn't the presence or the absence of Of being a jerk. Grace is given freely. Grace doesn't simply help you along the way. Grace is the way. Grace isn't just the little extra boost that you need. In order to get to the place where you need to go. Grace is all that there is. And it does all that is necessary in the person of, of Jesus Christ. The sinner, the sinner, the sinner can never, ever generate grace. The sinner can only be the object of grace. And when we, so the big question that you should ask is, how do I get this grace? Well, guess what? You can't get it. You can't demand it. You can't insist on it. You can, you can beg for it, and you can ask for it, and you can plead for it, and you will never get it. There's only one way to get it, and that's to get Jesus. And here's, this is the whole gospel in a nutshell. When you identify with Jesus, when you love Jesus, when you believe Jesus, when you believe his life and his death and his resurrection, everything that is in Jesus, the moment that you embrace Jesus and love Jesus and believe Jesus, then with Jesus comes an avalanche of grace. Because in the person of Jesus is contained all grace. The presence or the absence of devotion doesn't cause the presence or the absence of grace to believe and consent to be loved while unworthy is grace's greatest secret. Denny writes, it is not restraint but inspiration that liberates us from sin. It's not Mount Sinai but Mount Calvary that makes saints. So under the law, broken relationship with God. Wrath of God, condemnation, curse, alienation. 
under grace, renewed relationship with God, forgiveness of God, justification from God, blessing in God, fellowship with God. So why, 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 why is it so difficult to believe what Paul is saying about grace? I think that the biggest hindrance is because of the presence and the practice of sin. I think it's because it doesn't require any effort on your part to make it true. You see, you're used to things being true because you make them true. Or you think they're not true because that's the way you feel. But the presence or the absence of grace is never based on how you feel. Your feelings can't make grace go away. And your feelings can't make grace come. The only thing that makes grace show up is Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, grace shows up. You see, the truth is, every day that you hope that one day you'll be better is a day that you fail to see yourself in Christ. Because you can never be better than the day that Jesus shows up and he lives his life in you and through you. And when Jesus shows up and lives his life in you and through you, guess what? That's a day of grace. Every day that you're disappointed in yourself, it's because you still believe in yourself. Our next-door neighbors have a sign that says, Here, we help you believe in yourself. I was thinking about putting up a sign next to it that says, at Calvary, Here, we make sure you don't believe in yourself. (laughs) And that you believe in Jesus. So are you ready to live under grace? John Newton, who wrote... The best-selling song, Amazing Grace, famously said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But by grace, I am what I am. John Owen, the famous, famous Puritan minister said, If grace doth not change human nature, I do not know what grace doth. Yeah, they used to talk that way. Modern English, if grace doesn't change human nature, I have no idea what grace does. It's his way of saying, Grace changes everything. It changes everything. Who you were, who you are, where you've been, and ultimately where you're going. Now I can go to verse 15, but that's next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
Lord, we pray that, Lord, we would not be content to just simply know what the text says. That, but that, Lord, we would allow the text to give us permission to do something based on what it says. To believe in Jesus wholly, completely, exclusively. To allow grace to reign inside of our heart. To allow grace to become the motivating factor that operates in us and through us as we look to you. As we see Jesus and everything that we say and do. That it's God's grace by the power of the Holy Spirit informing us and then transforming us. And so again, Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that you would lift the veil from us. That, Lord, we could see like we've never seen before what it means to live in grace, to love in grace for the rest of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.